Um, I spent the entire year last year writing a message that I believe is a prophetic word for this year and beyond. Uh, I am deeply, deeply burdened, I'll just be really honest with you, um, by the number of people that have walked away from the church. You know, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says, In the last days before the man of sin is revealed, there's going to be a great falling away. Many, many are going to walk away from the faith. However, here's the really interesting news that I think a lot of us have not thought about, and, and, and the Spirit of God just dropped it in me last week. The Bible nowhere says they're not going to come back. And you know, I kind of I look at it like this. Uh, John the Baptist was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and I believe there's going to be a company of men and women that are going to be sent to the lost sheep of the church. Amen. But no, Barna has said over 40 million people have walked away from the faith in the last 23 years. Half of those 40 million are now professing atheists, agnostics, and spiritualists. And so, yeah, we, what, what is causing this epidemic? And this is really what caused me to start searching because I really love the church. I love people. I, I, I've seen moves of God over the 40 years I've been walking with Jesus that are mind-blowing. But I'm like, why, how can people walk away that, in that number? And so I believe that there is an element missing in the church today. And I'm going to share with, with you about it tonight. And so before I get into this, um, let's just pray, because I really want to believe that God literally changes your life tonight. We're not going to gather under this tent, you know, just to have a meeting. We've already really encountered God in the praise and worship and really encountered. You didn't waste any time. I was so blessed by Pastor Mark's preaching. Before I do pray, though, I... I, I'm going to ask, how many senior pastors are here tonight? Can I see a show of hands? Put your hands up high. Can we give them a huge hand? I will say that every move of God that I have been a part of in the world, I was in Scandinavia, and there was such a move of God going on. But every move, I remember sitting around the table, and one pastor said, I'm the head in the entire nation of the Baptist. The, another one said, I'm the head of the entire nation of the of the uh, Pentecostal. And next guy said, I'm the head of the entire nation of Word of Faith. And I was like, okay, I can understand why we are seeing such a move of God right now. And it's when leaders join together like this, that's when God begins to move powerfully. That's where he commands his blessing. I see my good friend, Pastor Jason Aguilar and his wife, Christina. There's others of you here I probably am not seeing because of the lights. But listen, thank you so much. We love you. Lisa and I love you. We feel like we are called to come alongside of you and help you pastor your church because we respect you so much for what you do. Amen. Pastoring is not an easy job, but it is a fulfilling job. And there is an anointing to do it. But I, I just don't want to see any more pastors fall away. I don't want to see believers walk away. I'm ready to see the church become so strong. Amen. So let's pray. I'm really believing tonight you're going to be strengthened. Hey, listen. The Holy Spirit, He is amazing. He can change every single one of you. I don't care if you're in that corner or that corner. The Spirit of God is every bit as much there as He is there as He is here. Amen. So I want you to expect, all right? Can we expect tonight? So can we pray tonight expecting? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do. And Lord God, we come before your throne with boldness. And we do come humbly and we thank you that you could have made us slaves. That would have been much better than where we were. But you've called us sons and daughters of God. And so tonight, Spirit of the living God, we are asking that you would literally invade this tent. Invade this sanctuary. We call it holy. We call it sanctified. And we're asking that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. For I decree, Lord God, that Jesus Christ is Lord in this service. And there is divine kingdom authority and order over the atmosphere of this place. Surround this tent with your mighty angels. And Father, I thank you that every single person under the sound of my voice will not leave those the way they came tonight. They will be changed. We will be changed forever and ever. And we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody that agrees shouts. Come on, thank him. Thank you, Lord, so much. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to ask you to do something tonight. Something unusual. It's all right. It's safe. I want you to close your eyes for uh, just, it'll only be 45 seconds. And the reason I'm asking you to close your eyes, I really want you to think about what I'm about to say. So everybody with your eyes closed, I'm going to open with this. What if you were told of a hidden virtue that in essence is the key to all of life? It unlocks the purpose of your existence. It attracts the presence, the provision, and the protection of your creator. It is the root of all noble character, the foundation of all happiness, and provides the needed adjustments to all inharmonious circumstances you might face. To firmly embrace This virtue guarantees success, safety, good health, a long life, and a noble legacy. Open your eyes. Do these words sound too good to be true? I assure you they are true as they were written by one of the wisest men that that has ever walked this planet. Not only this, but he did it under the inspiration of our creator the Holy Spirit. The man's name was King Solomon. He was raised in a home that taught him the fear of the Lord, his mother and father. He wrote about it. He was the man who wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He walked in such wisdom that his leadership excelled at an exponential rate. It is recorded that the millions of people that he led in Israel, that every single home, or excuse me, every single family had a home and had a garden. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. A nation of over 3 million people with no unemployment, no poverty, and nobody is renting. Every family had a home and a garden. Kings, queens, ambassadors, and nobles would travel great distances just to see the systems he put in place, the way his operations were conducted. People were astounded, even more astounded after they saw it than what they heard that caused them to travel those great distances. However, he did not value this virtue that I'm speaking of. 
He didn't value it. He didn't treasure it. He let it go. And when he let it go, we ended up getting a gift. And that gift is called the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, some of you are probably sitting there that, has read, that have read the Bible a few times. No, put the, get rid of that, please, just for a minute. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Hold on just a second. The book of Ecclesiastes is a gift. Yes, it is. We have two books that most pastors and preachers will avoid. It is called the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. Why do they avoid these books? Because they are two inspired books written by two very uninspired men. Okay? Because Solomon, King Solomon, who I speak of, writes, now you can put it up. Listen to the words he writes. Everything is boring. I am actually quoting straight from his book, Ecclesiastes. Everything is boring, utterly boring, and no one can find any meaning in it. History merely repeats itself as if there is nothing new under the sun. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. The day you die is better than the day you're born. Who writes these words? I will tell you who writes these words. A pessimistic cynic. Now, have you ever met anyone cynical in church? Anyone that's jaded? This is where Solomon was because he let go of the treasure that I speak of. But the good news is at the very end of this book, and who knows how many years he spent writing this dismal book, he finally said seven times in the very final chapter in one form or another, remember your creator. And then the very last verse of this book, he said the end of the matter all the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of man. In other words, what that means is this is man's all. The entirety of life can be summed up in these words. Fear God and obey his commandments. The fear of the Lord, according to the prophet Isaiah, is... God's treasure yes. and our and it should be our treasure. Yes. Now I want you to stop and think about this. God calls, look at this. God calls the fear of the Lord his treasure. Yes. What do we do with treasures? We protect them. We put them in safes. We put them in vaults. We hire security people. We make sure they're not mishandled. Solomon did not treasure the very virtue that got him the success that he was walking in. Are you seeing this? Now, the question we better ask immediately before I lose half of you is what is the fear of the Lord? Let me say this. The fear of the Lord has absolutely nothing to do with being scared of God. All right? The fear of the Lord is not to be scared of God. Do you remember when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? How many of you remember that? Let me see a show of hands. Give me a little bit of house light so I can see some people, all right? I got these, like, I like a deer in the headlight right now, okay? How many of you remember them coming out of Egypt, right? You ever, you ever watch the Prince of Egypt? You ever watch Yul Brenner and, and Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments? I think most of you have watched it, even if you're not even saved here tonight, right? All right, so where was their destination? When Moses led Israel out of Egypt, where were they headed? Shout it! What? The promised land. No. 
What did Moses say to Pharaoh five times? Thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. Why does Moses want to bring them out of the promised land before he first brings them to the promiser? If he brings them to the promised land before first bringing them to the promiser, they'll make the promised land into a place of idolatry. I mean, I find something so amazing. I look at Israel, and Israel is literally abused by Egypt. They have stripes on their backs from their whips. They're eating the leftovers. They live in the slums. Their children are put to death by the Egyptians, yet they come out of Egypt, and they're constantly saying, I want to go back. It was better for me back in Egypt. I look at Moses. He's raised in the most beautiful home on the planet. His grandfather is the wealthiest man on earth. He can throw a national party. He can have any Maserati. He can have any Ferrari or any Harley in the collection. He can, he can throw a big sports day and make an entire nation out of it, the biggest party of the nation. He comes out of Egypt and he never once says, I want to go back to Egypt. Yeah. Never yeah. once said. Yeah. Israel's constantly saying, I want to go back. Why is that? Because Moses had one encounter with God. One encounter with him. At the burning bush, Israel had a chance, but they blew it because Moses brings them to the mountain. And in Exodus 19, you will see God say to Moses, hey, go and tell. Because God and Moses are having a private meeting. The whole nation is at the foot of the mountain. God says, go down and tell the entire nation the whole reason I delivered you out of Egypt was to bring you to me. God said, I am so excited to meet my kids. I'm going to introduce myself to them in three days. Get them ready because I'm coming down. When God came down three days later, do you know what happened? The people all screamed and ran away. When they screamed and ran away, Moses could not believe what he was seeing. So he made a statement to them in Exodus 20, 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Now look at this. Do not fear. Everybody say, do not fear. fear. Because God's come to see if his fear is in you. Is Moses speaking out of both sides of his mouth? No, he's not. He is differentiating between being scared of God and the fear of the Lord. The person who is scared of God is something to hide. What does Adam do when he sins against God? He hides from the presence of the Lord. The person who fears God has nothing to hide. That person is terrified of being away from God. So the first definition of the fear of the Lord is to be terrified of being away from God. Write that down, okay? Jesus, he differentiates. Look what Jesus says in Luke 12. He said, I tell you who to fear. He said, fear God who has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. He's the one you should fear, so don't be afraid. Wait a minute. Jesus is saying, fear God, so don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Do you know your value to God is equal that of Jesus Christ? Because if it wasn't, God would not have sent Jesus to redeem and pay the ransom for you. That's how much he values you. So Jesus is obviously not saying being scared of God. He actually says, do not be afraid. So what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is to stand in awe of God. It is to honor, to tremble, to revere, to esteem, to respect, to value and venerate him more than anything or anyone else. Do you know the New York Times 
newspaper just released this week that when someone has awe in their life, A-W-E, it actually uh, releases endorphins into their body. Do you realize that? And that, and the article said everyone should have some awe in their life. So when we fear God or stand in awe of him, we firmly embrace his heart. We love what he loves. Okay. You listening to me? And we hate what he hates. You say, wait, 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 wait a minute. God hates. Yeah, he hates. There are things God hates. The Bible's full of it. I'll give you one from Proverbs. These six things the Lord hates. And the seventh one is so hateful, it's an abomination to him. What is that? Gossip. He hates God. Now, he didn't say he hates the gossiper. He hates gossip. See, let let me show you what a religious person says. I fear God. That's why I hate them sinners over there. You don't fear God at all because you hate what he loves. You have no fear of God. God loves that person so much he gave Jesus for him. So you hate what he loves. You don't fear God at all. But what God does hate is the sin that's unmaking that person. Are you seeing this? But the thing is, is he, you hate what he hates. Now, this is, this is what the fear of the Lord is not. It is not to dislike what he hates. Sure got quiet on that one. It is to hate what he hates. You know, back in 19, uh, 1990s, when I first started traveling, I remember I was spending two to two and a half hours every day in prayer, every single day. And after a couple of years, I got so frustrated because I said, God, why isn't there a stronger anointing on my life? I mean, I preach and my words just seem like they bounce back at me or they just go boing, 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 boing. It just seems like there's not a strong anointing. Why? And and so one day I was in prayer and I just said, why isn't there a stronger anointing in my life? And the Holy Spirit said, son, because you tolerate sin. Not only in your life, but in the lives of others. Then he said to me, he said, I want you to read Hebrews chapter one. And if you read Hebrews chapter one, you can do it later tonight. This is when God the Father is inaugurating Jesus Christ to be king of the universe. And God the Father makes this statement to God the Summer. He says, the Son, he says, he says, because you have loved righteousness. And the Holy Spirit said, stop right there. He said, every Christian loves righteousness. He said, but I didn't stop there. Because you loved righteousness and hated sin or lawlessness. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you above your companions. And the Holy Spirit said to me, son, learn to hate sin the way I hate sin, and you'll see the anointing increase upon your life. That's why Proverbs, and I'm going back one, Abby, that's why the Bible says in Proverbs 8, 13, all who fear the Lord hate evil. That is why I hate pride, arrogance, corruption, and perverted speech. So how do we break down the awe of God or the fear of the Lord? How do we break it down? Number one, it is to tremble at his presence. Write that down. Number two, it is to tremble at his word. Let me first of all talk to you tonight about trembling at God's presence. You say tremble, John? Yes, I mean tremble. The Bible says in Psalm 89 verse 7, God is greatly 
to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. Listen to me. You will never find God in an atmosphere where he is not held with the utmost of respect. Look at the second part of that verse. He is to be held in reverence by all those who surround him. I'll never forget when I really learned this experientially. It's a part of my journey. I was asked to go down to the nation of Brazil and speak in a national conference for the first time in 1997. I've been there many, many, many times since. I just spoke to 7,000 leaders a month ago in Brazil. I love going down there. But I remember I was so excited. I'd never been to this great nation. I was so, so happy because it was a national conference. And I remember flying down to the capital city of Brasilia. I spent the day praying in the room. I remember them picking me up for the conference that night. They drove me. And we, when we were still blocks away from the arena, there were cars parked all along the streets. And I knew this was going to be jam-packed because when we got in the parking lot, there wasn't a spot open except for the reserve spot they had for us. We pulled up. When we pulled up, you could hear the sound coming from the inside of the arena because there's a gap of six feet going all the way around the arena with the ceiling on it so they can get air ventilation. And I remember hearing the worship from the outside. They walked me in. That was back in the days when they put people on the platform. Oh my gosh, I hated those days. You just feel, you're, you're like, everybody is watching me. Why am I up here, right? I'm not leading worship, but anyway, those were the days. And I'm, I'm on the platform. It's one of the best worship teams in the nation. They're singing in Portuguese. I don't know what they're singing, but I can tell they're really good, right? They're gifted and the voices are really good. But there's not a drop of the presence in the entire place. Now, let me explain something to you. There are two types of the presence of God the Bible speaks of. The first presence is his omnipresence. That is where David said, if I make my bed in hell, you're there, or in the lowest valley, you're there. If I, make, if I go to the highest mountain, you're there. He said, where can I flee from your presence? That is the presence of the Lord that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. All right, that's his omnipresence. The other presence of God is called his manifest presence. Jesus said in John 14, I will manifest myself to you. Manifest means to bring from the unseen realm into the seen realm, the unheard realm into the, un, to the heard realm, the unknown realm into the known realm. It's when God reveals himself to your senses. That is a real part of Christianity. That is what Jesus said in John 14, I will manifest myself to you. And even the disciples said, how are you gonna do it to us and not to the world? He said, well, this is how we're gonna do it. And I won't get into that. But anyway, that presence was missing that night. And so I closed my eyes because I'm sitting here thinking the arena is full, okay, full. There's not a seat open anywhere that I can see. There are thousands of Brazilians. These are Christians. It's a Christian conference. So I closed my eyes and I said, God, where is your presence? So I opened up my eyes and I started seeing something I didn't see before I asked. I started noticing people standing there with their hands in their pocket, kind of looking around. They got their arms crossed like this, looking around. There were people walking in and out of the arena to the concession stands, getting something to drink or eat. And I'm watching people whispering to one another. Women are fumbling through their purses. This is while the worship's going on. I'm like, this will change, this will change. So the worship is over now. And because there's no music, I can hear a mutter from... The literally the multiple hundreds of people that are talking to each other. Wow. While one of the leaders is reading from the scripture. Okay, so I'm hearing people talk while he's reading from the scripture. 
And I'm I'm sitting here going, what is going on? So the Spirit of God speaks to me and said, son, you got to address this. I said, yeah, I know, but I don't know what to do. How do I even get their attention? But he gave me an idea. So when they introduced me, I came up. Now, this is the Friday night service of the National Conference, right? So they introduced me, and I come up, and I just sat there, and I stared at him. I didn't say a word. Now, when you're the guest speaker of the Friday night conference, and you're not saying anything, but you're staring at people for 45, 50 seconds, that gets a little awkward, and people stop talking, and they looked at me, and they were like, what are you doing? And when I realized every single eye was on me in that arena, this is the first words I ever spoke in public in Brazil. I didn't say, thank you for being here. You got great leaders. I didn't say any of that. I said, I have two questions. Question number one, you're talking to somebody sitting across the table from you, and the whole time you're talking to them, they got their arms crossed, looking around, they're staring down at the floor, or they're whispering to the person beside them. I said, will you continue to talk to them? The whole place goes silent. The whole place is silent. I go, no, you wouldn't. I had to answer my own question. I said, what if every time you go to your neighbor's house and you knock on the door and they open the door and when they see you, they go, oh, it's you again. And they walk into their house, leaving the door open. I said, will you go in? Will you continue to go over there? No. I said, I've been in this building for 75 minutes. And I said, I have not felt an ounce of the presence of God in this building. I said, because God will never come in a place where he's not held with the utmost of respect. I said, if pay... I said, if you're president, the president of Brazil would have walked on this platform tonight, he would have gotten 10 times the respect the Holy Spirit did. I said, if your greatest soccer player, Pele, would have walked on this platform tonight, you would have have been on the edge of your seats anticipating every word. I said, you've given no respect to the Spirit of God. And for the next hour and a half, I preached them on the fear of the Lord, on the awe of God. When I was finished, I said, every person in here, you say you're saved, you say you're born again, but you lack the fear of God, the awe of God, and you're willing to repent, stand up. 75% of the arena stands at their feet. Listen, listen. when they did, the presence of God fell on the arena. People started weeping, and and I'm sitting here as a young preacher going, God, I didn't even pray with them yet. Later on, thinking about it, I thought, all, all the prodigal did, the son did, is just say, I've been a jerk, I'm stupid, and he turned and started walking home, and his dad came... His dad came running with gifts before he ever said a word. So I'm sitting there and I'm watching God bless these people like crazy, right? They're weeping and it's wonderful. It lasts three or four minutes. It lifts. The presence of God lifts. And I lead them in a prayer of repentance. They pray a prayer of repentance. And another wave comes in. And now that more people are, you can hear the tears and people are just reverent. They're not budging, right? It's so wonderful. And it lasts three or four minutes and it lifts again. And the Spirit of God said to me, son, I'm coming again. He said, this will be the last time for tonight. And the only way I know how to describe this is you're standing at the end of John Wayne Airport and a Boeing jet takes off. That kind of a violent wind came blowing into that arena. Now, we didn't feel it. We heard it. And when that wind began to blow, the people erupted, erupted. Now, can you imagine thousands of Latinos screaming how loud that would be. Can you imagine that? The wind was louder. Okay? But that wasn't what was riveting. What was riveting was the authority that came into that building. 
I'm standing there and I'm literally petrified, terrified. But I'm drawn to it. Okay, now, I know that sounds crazy. I'm actually standing there and these thoughts are racing through my mind. John Bevere, you say one wrong word. You make one wrong move. You're dead. Wow. Now, would that have happened? I don't know, but it did with a man and a wife who brought up an offering in Acts chapter 5. That's New Testament. All I can say, all I can say is I knew irreverence would not be tolerated in this atmosphere. And I'm standing there, and I remember I'm, I'm standing there going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And this wind lasts for about 90 seconds. It leaves in its wake. People collapsed over the back, backs of the chairs in front of them. People li literally sobbing. I'm standing there, and I stood for like 10 minutes. Like, God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And finally, after about 10 minutes, the Lord said, I I'm through with you tonight. So I said to the leader, it's all yours. <laughs> And I, I remember they, 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 they whisked me off the platform, put me in the car. They put the national, the, the, the lady that did the solo that night. Well, I say lady. She's probably in her late 20s. She and her husband in the car. She gets in the car. She goes, did you hear the wind? Did you hear the wind? I said, no, I didn't want to be the one that said it. So I said, maybe it was a jet aircraft flying too low over the building. And she goes, what are you talking about? Didn't you see the fire? I saw angels. And she's like, like ay, ay, ay. And her husband, who was much, much calmer, if we have any Brazilians in here, you know what I'm talking about. Her husband was a much, much calmer, said, sir, that was no jet airplane. I said, how do you know? He said, I was at the main soundboard. He said, because I had to make sure that my wife's levels were right. He said, John, so I'm in the back of the building. There are security men and policemen all around the outside of the building. Most of them aren't even saved. When the wind began to blow, they heard it. And they came running in saying, what in the world is going on? He said, I'm standing at the soundboard. And the whole time the wind's blowing, the decimal meters are at zero. He said, not one ounce of the sound of the wind came through our sound system. I remember that night. I remember that night I stayed on my balcony and I worshiped until 1.30 in the morning. I was in awe of what I had just, I, I, I kept thinking, did that really happen, okay? You see, the next morning, you cannot believe the miracles of healings and deliverance and salvations that occurred all because of reverence. All because of reverence. You know, we heard this for 22 years afterwards. 2016, I go down to speak to 12,000 pastors and leaders in Goiania, Brazil. The man who meets me, the lead pastor, one of the lead pastors, shakes my hand and says, I was in the building in 1997 when the wind blew. My life has never been the same. My wife goes down in 2019, 22 years later, to Brazilia. The lady says, Lisa, lady leading, she and her husband leading the whole national conference that Lisa did. I was in the building in 1997. My life has never been the same. God makes a statement in Leviticus, Leviticus the 10th chapter, third verse. God says, by those who come near me, I must. I'm going to preach on this tomorrow morning at the first service. I'm doing, I'm doing three different services. One, one now, different one tomorrow morning, and another different one in the second service. So 
Just do triple dose. I must be regarded as holy. You know, I, I, I remember I stumbled into this several years ago. I remember going out into my prayer closet because I like praying outside. And I'd go outside and I always find a deserted place. And I, I remember that one particular morning I decided I'm not going to pray in English. I'm not going to pray in the spirit. I'm not even going to sing. I'm just going to think about how awesome my daddy is. And I started thinking about him putting the stars in the universe with his fingers, calling everyone by name and span, measuring the universe with the span of his hand. And all of a sudden the presence of God comes. I'm like, whoa, usually I have to struggle to get in the presence of God in my prayer closet. So the next morning I thought, I'm going to try it again. So I went in there, I just thought, and there was the presence of God again. I thought, wait a minute. So the next morning I did it again, and there's the presence of God again. I said, I said okay, Lord, uh, what's going on here? I used to have to fight, struggle, strive to get into your presence in my prayer closet. It's like you're meeting me immediately. And the Holy Spirit said, son, how did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? And I started quoting the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, oh my goodness, there it is. That word hallowed means keeping your name holy. Jesus taught his disciples, you can only come into the presence of God with reverential awe. Are you still here? I remember in 1997, two years after Brazil, I was asked to go to the nation of Malaysia. Malaysia is a, it's, 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 Islam is state religion. In other words, it's mandatory. Do you understand? That's the law of Malaysia. And I was at the largest Bible school in the nation and there were people that came from all over, all over. We did 10 meetings. And I'll never forget this. It was a similar situation as here, but much bigger. We had a very long, long platform and the building was much wider than it was deep. Does that make sense? And it was jam-packed on that 10th meeting. I'll never forget, I called all the women who were called to full-time ministry. I said, everyone, you're called to full-time ministry. You're female and you uh, have never publicly acknowledged it. I want you to come down. Well, we were four to five deep of women all the way down, right? On this long, long, right? So I'm coming down the stairs to minister to these women. And all of a sudden, daddy comes in. Wow. Now, this is, there's no other way of describing it. I'm raised Catholic. I'm, I'm not used to this, okay? So um, I start watching these women start smiling. And then they started laughing. And then they started falling over. And nobody was catching them. <laughs> and within 30 seconds... Every single woman was on the floor, and I remember seeing three women on top of each other because nobody had caught them. It wasn't organized. They just went, bram, okay? And they're howling, laughing, okay? And I remember, I, I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, Daddy is here. And, and I remember I just sat down on the platform, and I just watched because I knew I was out of it, right? And, and so I literally, Mark, I'm watching these women, one woman, one in particular, now, you got to understand, Asian women are quiet, okay? And, and she's rolling back and forth with her hands on her gut, howling, laughing. And I'm sitting there going, that must be where they got holy rollers from. <laughs> Seriously. So, so I, I mean, it was just amazing. It lasted about five minutes. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks to me in the middle of it. And he said, I'm coming in a different way. Now, within 30 seconds, 
all of the women stopped laughing and that presence that I had sensed, that same presence that was in Brazil starts manifesting in that auditorium. This was not an arena. This was an auditorium. And I remember when it did, I got up. And within another minute, every one of these women that were howling laughing are screaming like they're on fire. It was not unholy. It was not demonic. I have seen demonic stuff. This was holy. And the only thing I could think is God is baptizing these women in fire. Okay? And I remember that authority is in that building again. Okay? And I'm walking back and forth. And I'm, I'm, I remember this is when I found out there's a difference between my mind and my heart. Because my mind said, God, I can't handle any more of this. And my heart was going, please don't lift. Please, more, more, more. And I'm, I'm sitting there literally hearing an argument go on. I'm walking back and forth. The thought goes through my mind again several times. You make one wrong move. You say wrong one, wrong, one wrong word. You're dead. And I, I remember I, there, the authority is so strong. And I'm walking back and forth. And all of a sudden, something comes out of my mouth my mind had never thought of before. My ears had never heard before. But out of my mouth comes this. This is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And I went, oh my gosh, that's right. That's one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. See, Isaiah chapter 11 says, look at this about Jesus. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon Jesus. The, the spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now look at this. His delight, his delight was in the fear of the Lord. Now let me ask a question. The fear of the Lord's God's treasure and Jesus' delight, and we don't talk about it? Why are we talking about this? I'll never forget that lasted about three or four minutes. It lifted. Every, all of us went quiet again. I'm standing again. And I'm like, God, what do I do? And again, I heard the Lord say, I'm, I'm finished with you. <laughs> so I turned over to the leader again. And I remember the leader was really smart. He said, guys, I'm not ending this service with the worship team. I, this service is concluded. You can stay here as long as you want because God is still here. Yes. And I remember I stayed for probably 15, 20 minutes. And I felt released. So I remember walking out and I get to the back and there's this couple from India. She was one of the ones that got nailed. Okay. And we're just, we're just, we're just looking at each other. We're, we're like this. And we're just looking at each other. Finally, she breaks the silence, and she goes, I feel so clean inside, Pastor John. And I, 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 I leapt inside. I said, that's it. That is it. That is what I sensed in Brazil when that presence came in. That's what I sensed in California. That's what I sensed in North Carolina and the few other times I've experienced. It's only been a handful of times. I thought, that's, the, that's what it is. You feel so clean. So I remember... I go back to the hotel, 
The next morning, I'm, I'm getting my gym shorts on to play basketball with the Bible school students over in Malaysia. And while I'm putting my gym shorts on, the Holy Spirit speaks to me and said, son, read Psalm 19. Now, I have no idea what's in Psalm 19. So I go to Psalm 19, and this is what I read. Look at this. The fear of the Lord is clean. I went, oh my, my, there it is. And then he said, look at this, enduring forever. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me in that hotel room and he said, son, Lucifer led worship right before my throne. He beheld my glory, unveiled glory. He was anointed to do it. He didn't fear me. He didn't endure forever. A third of the angels, son, surrounded my throne. They beheld my glory. Unveiled glory. They didn't fear me. They didn't endure forever. He said, Adam and Eve walked in the presence of my glory in the Garden of Eden. They didn't fear me. They didn't endure forever forever. And he said, every created being that surrounds my throne throughout eternity will have been tested in the holy awe of God. Afterwards, I started thinking, pastors have started in ministry. Ministers have started in ministry. They're excited. They loved God with all their heart. They wanted to help people. They didn't endure forever. In 1994, I was asked to visit one of the most famous men on the planet at that time. He had the largest television evangelistic ministry in the world in the 1980s. He committed fraud, was arrested and prosecuted, sentenced for 45 years. They reduced it later to five years. His trial, his conviction, and his, his, his trip to the penitentiary was aired every single day on CNN. So I, he had read the first book that I had written in prison and he asked someone to call me and ask if I would, his assistant to call and see if I would come and visit him in the prison. When I walked in the prison, I'll never forget it. Here's a man, he's, he's older than me. He grabs me and he holds me and he won't let me go. Grabs me by the shoulders. He said, did you write this book or a ghostwriter? I said, I wrote every word. I've been through a wilderness, but not near what you've been through. He said, we have so much to talk about. I'm sitting across the table from him. The very first word thing he said is he said, John, this prison was not God's judgment on my life. It was his mercy. He said, John, if I continued to live the way I was living, I would have been separated from God forever. I would have been in the lake of fire forever. When he said that, I realized, okay, I'm listening to a man of God. He told me how Jesus came into his prison cell and delivered him his first year of prison. He said, there was so much evil in my life. He said, John, we study the Bible every day for at least three hours. We have a church here in the prison. He told me, I don't, I said, well, obviously you lead the church. He said, no, I don't. I will not do it. I was a master manipulator before. I am not going back because if I ever go back, I'm done. And he said, so I'm not leading it. One of the other prisoners is leading the church. So, after he told the story, and I felt comfortable enough, I said, 
I have questions. Can I ask you one of my biggest questions? He said, sure. I said, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? I said, in the early 80s, when I would watch you, you would weep as you would preach. You would, your passion for Jesus, your love with Jesus was so strong. When did, you, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? And he looked at me and he said, John, I didn't. Then I got a little upset and my walls went up again. And I said, hold on a minute. You committed adultery, and I named the woman he committed adultery with in 1983. You, you were arrested in 1990. You're living totally an ungodly life all seven of those years. What do you mean you didn't fall out of love with Jesus? He said, John, I loved him all the way through it. And he sees confusion on my face. And he said, John, I didn't fear God. And he said, John, there are millions of Americans like me. They love Jesus, but they don't fear him. The second manifestation of the holy awe of God or the holy fear of God is to tremble at his word. Israel at this time was serving God their own way. They were incorporating scriptural things. They were actually bringing their lamb sacrifices, their bull sacrifices, their grain offerings. But they were serving God their way. And so God was not paying attention to them and they were frustrated. And God said through the prophet to them, this is the one, in other words, I've been ignoring. He said, he, basically God said, your, your lamb sacrifices are like offering pig's blood to me. Your, your grain offerings are like killing a man. And he said, but then he makes this statement. He said, this is the one. This is the person I will look at. Now that word look means pay attention to. So he is saying, this is the one that I will pay attention to. He or she who is humble and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So what does it mean to tremble at the word of God? It is the man, it is the evidence. Everybody say evidence. How do we know there's electricity in an outlet? If we plug the blow dryer in and turn it on and there's air, the evidence that there's power in the outlet is that you're getting hot air. If you don't get hot air, the evidence is there's no power. Right. What is the evidence of somebody who truly fears God? They tremble at his word. What does it mean to tremble at God's word? It means you will obey him. Wow. Listen to me, immediately. Yes. Everybody say immediately. Yes. You know how people say, well, you know the Lord's been dealing with me about this now for several months. And then they laugh about it. And I think... You're laughing about your lack of holy awe. I mean, do you know David said in Psalm 119, I will hurry to obey your commandments. It means you'll obey him even if it doesn't make sense. Has God ever told you to do something that doesn't make sense? Does it make sense to forgive somebody who's hurt you? Does it make sense to spit in the ground and make mud and put it in the guy's eyes and then the guy sees? Does it make sense to tell... 253 sailors not to leave a sinking ship when these skilled sailors have lifeboats available to them, but yet everyone was saved? I mean, I could go on all night. Does it make sense to love your enemies? 
Okay, it means you'll obey God even if it hurts. Has God ever told you to do something and ended up being painful? Doesn't mean God's into inflicting pain into his children. It means we live in a fallen world and obedience to God, we're going to run up against painful situations. That's why the Bible says, as Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. The religious person goes out to suffer to please the God, little g, he, he or she serves. The Christian obeys God, but in the midst of the stream of a fallen world runs into persecution and affliction. Good preaching. It means you'll obey him even if you don't see a benefit. Do you know how many Christians you have to show them the benefit before they obey? What if Esther would have been like that? Esther is queen to the Persian king. They are going to annihilate the entire race of Jewish people in one day. Nobody knows she's a Jew except her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai says, Esther, you got to go before the king. She says, if I do, even though he's my husband, if he doesn't point the scepter at me, my head comes off. And he says, but Esther, if you don't go, (laughs) deliverance will come from somewhere else. And she goes, go tell everyone to fast. I'm going for the king. And if I die, I die. Okay, she had everything to lose, including her head and nothing to gain. But she still obeyed God. She feared God. Are you seeing this? Number five, it means you'll obey him all the way to completion. Saul, King Saul did 99.99% of what God asked him to do, but God said he's rebelled against me. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, why don't you pay attention to what I did do instead of what I didn't do? Well, God, why didn't you pay attention to the 999,999 people that Saul killed? Why did you pay attention to the one king he spared? Because he didn't obey God to completion. Good preaching, John. Amen. Thank you. All right. So let me talk about the promised rewards of the awe of God. Are you ready? Everybody ready? Come on. Say yes if you're ready. Number one, friendship with God. Now, I really want to hone in on this one. Friendship with God. Psalm 25, 14. The secret, that word actually in the Hebrew means secrets. The secrets, plural, of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. Let me ask you a question. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you have secrets in your life? Can you put your hands up? Do I pray for the rest of you for lying now or later? Everybody's got secrets. How many of you know all secrets aren't bad? All right, so let me ask you again. How many of you got secrets? Okay, yeah, everybody, all right? All right, now, let me ask you this question because now you can relate to me. Who do you share your secrets with? Acquaintances? or intimate close friends? Come on, answer me. Intimate close friends. God's no different. God says, I share my secrets with my intimate close friends. And by the way, my intimate close friends are those who fear me. Let me prove this to you. Out of the New Living Translation, it says, friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. With them, he shares his secrets. So what is, what is the psalmist saying? God is not everybody's friend. 
Let me get more specific. There are two men that were called friends of God in the Old Testament. Who were they? Abraham and Moses. Were there others? Yeah, you better believe it. Deborah was a friend of God. Esther's a friend of God. David's a friend of God. uh, Daniel's a friend of God. But these two men's lives exemplify what it takes to have a relationship of friendship with the Lord. The first one, Abraham. Why does God call Abraham his friend? Because when Abraham was old, God comes to him one night and goes, Abe. Abe goes, yes, Lord. Yes, yes. Abe, you know your son who you waited for for 25 years that I promised you? The son that you love more than anything or anyone else? Yes. I want you to go on a three-day journey and kill him for me. That's it, period. Now, you've read this story. You know what happens. He didn't. He never read Genesis. Okay? Do you understand that God says, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac, the one you love more than anything or anyone else, and God doesn't even give him a reason. You know, one of my sons looked at me one day and said, Dad, I'm a millennial. You got to give me the why. I said, okay, 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 I'll make you a deal. I'll make you a deal. In 1 Kings 13, God tells a prophet to go prophesy to the king of Israel. And he tells him not to eat anything and then come back by a different way. The prophet doesn't do it, and a lion kills him because of his disobedience. I said, the day you tell me why God told him to go one way and come back a different way is the day I will tell you why I'm asking you to do this. (laughs) To this day, he still can't tell me, and I can't tell you. So God just says to Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice him, period. Now, do you know what my Bible says? Early the next morning. Hold on a minute. Oh, you know, the Lord's been dealing with me about this now for several months. I have a lot of people telling me they don't think I should do it. My mom and dad think I should do it, but my friends don't. You understand what I'm saying? Early the next morning. Early the next morning. He's on it. Now, God gives him a three-day journey because he wants to give him three days to think it over. It's easy to hear. No, it's e- I shouldn't say easy. It's easier to do it the morning after you heard the booming voice of God the night before. But what about two and a half days later? When you're look- you haven't heard a thing from heaven and you're looking at the mountain, you're going to put the most important person or thing to death and you're like, just because God said do it and didn't give you a reason. So Abraham goes to the mountain Builds the altar. Can you imagine the emotions just surging emotions? He ties Isaac on that altar. He lifts up the knife. He's ready to put the most important person or thing to death in his life just because God said do it and didn't give him a reason. And as soon as he's ready to thrust the knife, the angel of the Lord appears and says, Abraham, look at this. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now. I know that you fear God. How did the angel, how did the angel know that he feared God? Because Abraham did it immediately. He did it 
when it didn't make sense. He did it when it hurt. He did it when he didn't see a benefit and he did it to completion. Abraham puts down the knife, unties Isaac, lifts his eyes and there's a ram caught in the thicket. And out of Abraham comes Jehovah Jireh. Do you understand God just revealed a facet of his personality to Abraham that nobody had ever known before? Because he's my friend. Okay, most of you are not getting this. Okay, I'm Okay, okay, okay. All of you, all of you, all of you tonight, all of you know me as John Bevere preacher. Right? Some of you know me as John Bevere author. But there is a lady. Wow, she's a lady. She knows me as John Bevere husband, John Bevere dad, John Bevere G daddy, John Bevere athlete. She knows me as John Bevere best friend. She knows me as John Bevere lover. Can I say this? None of you will ever know me as John Bevere lover. That is a facet of my personality that is reserved for one person, the, per- the person who's closest to me on the earth, okay? God just revealed a facet of his personality to Abraham. Nobody had ever known before, because he's my friend. Now, now, now look, look at the relationship between God and Abraham. It's amazing. One day the Lord says, should we do what we're planning on doing with Sodom and Gomorrah without first talking to our friend Abraham? So the Lord comes down and, and he has a meal with Abraham, the two angels, and they go, and, and the angels go down to the valley and, and, and God and Abraham go to the cliff and the Lord says, Abe, we're thinking about blowing up these two cities over here. What do you think? And Abe goes, Sodom? And the Lord goes, yeah, 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 and Gomorrah. What do you think? And Abe goes, think, 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 Lot, my nephew's over there in Sodom. Oh my gosh, think Abraham. Okay, okay, Lord, you wouldn't like, you wouldn't like blow up the cities if there was 50 righteous people. Would you? And the Lord goes, excellent idea, excellent idea. Okay, we will not blow up the cities if there's 50 righteous people. Glad we talked to our friend Abraham, right? Abe goes, with there's in 50, oh my God. Okay, Lord. Don't get upset with me, but would you like blow him up if there was 45? And the Lord goes, another good idea. Okay, we will not blow up the cities if there's 45. Now, Abraham talks him all the way down to 10. Because he's figured there's got to be 10. I mean, I mean, Lot's one, all I need is nine other guys, right? But there isn't, there isn't, there isn't. Now, this is, this is amazing. When you look at what the Bible says, it says Sodom and Gomorrah was buying, selling, planting, harvesting, marrying, and giving in marriage. What is the modern-day vernacular of that? Sodom and Gomorrah, man, life is great. The economy is booming. And if there is a God, he doesn't mind our lifestyle. They are 24 hours away from being obliterated, and they're clueless. That's not scary. This is what's scary. Lot, everybody say Lot, Lot, who the Bible calls righteous. First, second Peter chapter one, righteous. Let me put it in today's terms. Born again, yeah. Christian. Yeah. Lot, Abraham's nephew, right. is 24 hours away from being obliterated and he's as clueless as Sodom. Wow. It takes two angels, two, two messengers, two angels, two messengers of mercy because Abraham prayed for Lot. Thank God he prayed for him yes. to get him out. And look at his offspring, Moab and Ammon. Here's two saved men, two righteous men, 
I'll say it in today's language, two born-again men. One righteous, say, born-again man knows what God's going to do before he does it and helps God decide how he's going to do it. The other righteous, say, born-again man is as clueless as the world. Why? This righteous, say, born-again man fears God, therefore he's the friend of God, therefore God shares the secrets with him. This righteous, saved, born-again man does not fear God, therefore he does not know the secrets of God because he's not the friend of God. Jesus made the statement, you are my friends. We write songs about it. We preach sermons about it. We write books about it. But we never finish the statement. Because he said, you're my friends if. Now, if is a condition. If I look at you and say, I'll pay you $2,000 if you work for me next week. And you don't work for me next week. And you come expecting the $2,000. I will say, no. It was a condition. I said, I will pay you the 2000 if you work for me. You didn't work for me, so you don't get the 2000 Jesus said, you're my friends if. Yes. If what, Jesus? You do whatever I command you. There it is, the fear of the Lord, trembling at his word. What Jesus is saying here is not everybody in the church is my friend. But he wants, listen, he wants to be your friend. Matter of fact, he passionately wants to be your friend, but you're the one that determines that. You still here? Second benefit of the fear of the Lord is joy. Psalm 112, how joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight. Look at the words, delight. So you know you have the fear of the Lord in you when you yearn to obey God. Now, remember what Paul said? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Okay, why is it that keeping the commandments of God for some people in the church is so burdensome? Because they have no holy fear. Okay, I'll quote it again. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's New Testament. He didn't say work out your salvation with love and kindness. He didn't say that. Work out your salvation. Work out means mature your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. So in other words, the person who fears God goes, I want to obey God. I am passionately Wanting to obey God. And I delight in obeying God. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Right? Okay. Joy. Everybody say joy. So show me somebody who's grumpy. They don't fear God. You you have no fear of God. Number three, blessed posterity. Everybody say, this is a promise to those who fear God. God says you will have a blessed posterity. Posterity. Listen to this. Their children will be successful everywhere. An entire generation of godly people will be blessed. Do you see the word entire generation? That means generations for a long, long, long time. Look at this. Look at this. Zacchaeus said his mercy is on those who fear him from generation 
to generation. Remember when Abraham obeyed God and had the knife and God said, stop? You know what God said to him? All right, Abraham, blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. I went to a rabbi and I said, what does this mean? It's in the original, blessing, I will bless. God doesn't stutter, what does it mean? And he said, John, what God is saying is, not only will I bless you, Abraham, but I will continue to bless you through your children. Now stop and think about this. Nobody, nobody in this generation would have ever heard of Archie Manning. Who's Archie Manning? He was the... He was the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. He played 10 seasons. They were 500 on one season, and they were losing in all nine other seasons. So he was a loser. But he had two sons, Peyton and Eli. They won four Super Bowls and four MVPs. Now when Archie Manning walks into a room, he gets a lot of honor and respect. Because, because of Peyton and Eli. Well, can you imagine Abraham? Abraham walks in the room. Hmm, there's David. Oh, there's, there, 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 there's Daniel. Hmm, Esther. Jesus. Jesus. Do you understand? He's continually being blessed. Now, but also the Bible says that those who fear the Lord will be long remembered. So not only generation to generation, but long remembered. I want you to look up at me. I want you to listen. In 1870, a sociologist named Richard Dugdale went to 12 prisons in upper state New York. In going to those 12 prisons, he discovered seven men that were related to each other with different last names. That sparked curiosity in him. He started tracing their lineage and he traced it all the way back to a man that he gave of a fictitious name to, of Max Jukes. Max Jukes was born between 1720 and 1740. He was a corrupt drunkard. He married a very foul woman. And they were able to find 540 descendants of Max Jukes. Of the 540 descendants, 310 died as paupers. 140 convicted criminals, seven of them were murderers, 18 brothel keepers, 440 alcoholics, and 128 prostitutes. There was another man born around the same time as Max Jukes. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards married a woman named Sarah Pierport, and between them they had... 11 children. Jonathan was a great preacher of the gospel. He wrote hands, the hands of, hands of, wait a minute, the sinners in the hand of an angry God. He preached the gospel all over. They believed every home was a church. They laid hands on every one of their church, laid hands every single day. They read the scripture and prayed together. Of his, the 1,394 descendants, 13 college or university presidents, 65 university professors, 
three United States senators, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 Army and Navy officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence, one vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, and 80 public officials in other capacities. God promises those who fear the Lord, their, their children will be successful everywhere. An entire generation will be blessed. Can I give you a couple more and I'll close? How many of you want a couple more? You want a couple more? It eliminates all fears. They, those who fear the Lord, do not fear bad news. <laughs> social media, mainstream media. You don't fear it. They confidently trust in the Lord to care for them. They are confident and fearless and can face their foes triumphantly. Oswald Chambers said, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas when you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Ephraim Ephraim the Syrian, he was in the second century, one of the disciples of the disciples of Jesus. Whoever fears God stands above all manner of fear. He has become a stranger to all fear of this world and has placed it far from himself. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Number five. In other words, you're not even walking in wisdom until you fear God. Yeah, your wisdom may be temporary, but... There are two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom from above and the wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and demonic. So the wisdom of this world is broken up into three, okay? If you want to walk in eternal wisdom that will also make you successful in this life like Solomon, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Now, that word beginning is the word that was in Genesis 1-1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, it is the starting place. The starting place of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Are you with me? Proverbs 4, 7 says, getting wisdom is the most important thing you can do. Now, can you give me just five more minutes? The fear of the Lord, look at this, Proverbs 14, 27, is a fountain. Everybody say fountain. All right, now listen carefully. That word fountain in the Hebrew just means it's a continual flowing source that doesn't stop. All right. It is a fountain of what? Life. To turn one away from the traps or snares of death. So we're seeing something here. Death has traps. Every hunter knows a trap means one of two things or both two things. It needs to be hidden and it needs to be baited. Hidden so the animal stumbles into it, baited so the animal takes it. The death traps that the enemy puts in people's lives are hidden and baited. But the fear of the Lord is a continual fountain that turns us away from them. Now, it's a fountain of what? Proverbs 15.33 says it is the instruction of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. So now, let's put it all together, and I'm going to do it in the next frame. Holy fear is a fountain, a continual flow of instruction of God's wisdom. It turns us away from the traps of death. Now, I want everybody to look at me. I want everybody to look at me. I don't want you to miss what I'm going to say. I want to show you a man in the Bible who did not have a relationship with God but he feared God. 
And that man's name was Abimelech. Abimelech was the king of Gear. Abraham comes in with his gorgeous wife, Sarah, and he tells Abimelech, she is my sister. He deceives her. Wasn't good on Abraham's part. I mean, it was a half-truth. She was his half-sister. Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem, and God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you are a dead man because you have another man's wife. Do you have it? Yeah. Do you see that? Abimelech cries out and says, but God, I was told she was his sister. I didn't know she was his wife. And look what God says. I know. And that's why I kept you from going to bed with her. Okay. His fear of the Lord was a flowing fountain that turned him away from the trap of death. The trap of death. There was a trap laid for him. Okay, now this is my question. How can a man attend church for 20 years, hear the word of God every Sunday, and end up in bed with another man's wife? It's not rocket science. He has no fear of God. How does a preacher stand behind a pulpit for 20 years declaring the word of God and ends up in bed with another man's wife? It's not rocket science. It's no fear of God. This is why we need the fear of God preached in our churches. Amen. I think you've got enough. Let's everybody stand up. I want you to, I want you to, everybody stand up. I think I've said enough tonight. With every head bowed, every eye closed, there's so much more. There's 42 chapters in the new book. I, I, I just touched it. I'm going to preach a different, two, two more different messages tomorrow. If you're in here tonight, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And you say, John, I don't understand. Normally, if I would have heard a message like this, I would have been running for the door. But for some reason, I was drawn to what you were saying tonight. I'll tell you why. Because it's truth, and you know it. And the Spirit of God is calling you home. There are people in here tonight. You're here because you love the atmosphere. Somebody invited you to come. But I'm going to ask you something. Do you have an authentic, real, genuine relationship with your Creator? You don't get a relationship by just praying a sinner's prayer. The Bible says a man leaves his father and mother's joined to his wife, and the two become one. This is actually an illustration of the way the church and Jesus are one. God gave us an illustration we look at every single day the union of a man and a woman. Jesus is called the groom and we're called the bride. When a woman gets married, she says goodbye to about 3.9 billion guys. She said, this is the one and only man I'm giving the rest of my life to. 
She doesn't make vows and then jumps in bed with our, her former boyfriends a couple nights a year. That doesn't work. No marriage lasts. She makes the decision, I'm giving my entire heart and life to him. Jesus made the first decision before you ever even knew him. He left the right hand of God Almighty. He came into this earth. He was spit on. He was punched. He had his beard plucked out. He had thorns shoved into his skull. He was insulted. He was mocked. He was despised. He was rejected. He was shamed. He had a whip with bone and lead tips on it thrust into his back 40 times. And he had nails driven through his hands and feet. And he knew it was going to happen before he came because he gave himself completely for you. If you think he's coming back for a bride that's given herself half-heartedly to him, you're so deceived. I would never have married my wife if she said, I want to, I'm just going to give you half my heart and hang out with my boyfriends. But I'll give you most of the time. I never would have married her. He's not coming back for a bride that's only given part of her life to him.